Good evening. Some 200 people, academics, critics and other Joyce addicts from 18 countries, were in Dublin earlier this month for the 4th International James Joyce Symposium. It was held in Newman House in St Stephen's Green, where Joyce was once a student, and it took place in the week ending on Bloomsday, the 16th of June. Now, in the after-bloom, after-glow, let's recall some of the themes of the symposium. One of the main topics was the place of Joyce in modern and postmodern literature. Here is Professor Ihab Hassan, an Egyptian scholar who teaches in the University of Wisconsin. He has a word to say, first of all, about the categorising of literature into periods of this kind. The fact that we've had, throughout the centuries, periods like romantic, neoclassical, Victorian, Edwardian, and for something like 70 years now, since the turn of the century, roughly speaking, we've been talking about modern literature. Now we begin to sense that even though modern literature continues, and many writers who are very young, like Updike, for instance, uh, are still writing in the modernist vein, a new type of literature is emerging, one that we have not been able to define completely and to name properly, and somewhat helplessly call postmodern, simply because it seems to emerge somewhere around World War II, either immediately before or immediately after. And this is where Joyce comes in, because if, were, if one were to locate the postmodern, its source, one would have to pick 1938 Beckett's Murphy as a possible source of the postmodern spirit, or 1939 as Finnegan's Wake as another possible source of the postmodern, and that Joyce's last work uh, is indeed uh, almost a compendium of postmodernist techniques. Now, what is postmodern? And that's, of course, the question that one would want to address oneself to. And I think, among other things, it is an insistence that language has in some way severed separated itself from the world of objects and things, and that even though it remains extremely rich and vital, it is beginning to refer to itself more than to the outside world. Would you draw a parallel here with certain tendencies in painting, the, the whole notion of hard edge? Would you almost speak of hard edge language then? Yes, I think that hard edge language would be very definitely a, an analogue I think another analogue would simply uh, be to talk about language as a, a form of play, as a form of supreme exuberance that is a self-sufficient and autonomous activity that need not describe the world, that need not describe uh, a family, a, a particular social condition, but that is a world, a universe that is totally self-enclosed. But it is, of course, still communicating, you would say. It is communicating insofar as it allows you to participate in the universe that it has created and to enter it and to become part of its consciousness. But what it does not communicate is a kind of mimetic activity, a kind of uh, correspondence with some place outside of the world, which, which then you go out and verify and, and see for yourself. Do you see, then, the reaching of this stage by Joyce as the end and, and necessary uh, goal to which he had been working even in Ulysses? Or would you say there were two Joyces? That Joyce, the Joyce of Ulysses was a modern, whereas the Joyce of Finnegan's Wake was a postmodern. That the Joyce of, uh, of Ulysses was still using language representationally, although with some uh, 
some very highly individual excursions, perhaps, into the later style, and that the Joyce of Finnegan's Wake is, uh, as you've said, non-representational. Something like this, but I would draw the line more sharply, perhaps even before Ulysses. I think certainly when we go as far back as Dubliners, and perhaps even the portrait, there we see the use of language that is still representational, still mimetic, as I say. Ulysses is, a, is an ambiguous case in this, uh, in this particular scheme because I think it is both representational and uh, non-representational, perhaps even more non-representational than anything else. But certainly when we get to Finnegan's Wake, which is the last work of Joyce, uh, we begin to see that uh, total self-delight uh, and self-enclosure and self-creation of language itself that ceases to be representational in any, uh, in any traditional sense Though, of course, and this has to be said, Finnegan's Wake is full of accurate references to Dublin and to people and to events and to history and to uh, objects. Uh, nevertheless, all these are so co-opted, so uh, absorbed into the language universe of Finnegan's Wake that uh, we have to say that they no longer function separately as they do in everyday reality. It's a, it's a dream world. It's a meta-language. It's a meta-world. Do you think that this kind of meta-language, that this kind of non-representational, non-mimetic <coughs> use of language is the only way in which uh, today a writer can really reach out to the imagination of his reader? I doubt it. I think that, uh, as uh, many people have been pointing out, uh, readers are interested in something more immediate, something uh, that appeals to their sense of uh, reality, which means the body, which means actually their uh, private life, their uh, erotic life, their dream life, and that this sort of meta-language may not be the only one to reach large segments of uh, the reading public, and that, uh, at least in the United States now, uh, rock music and film and certain kinds of sentimental literature are making that appeal to large parts of the, of the population, but that still there is an elitist group of writers, they are the ones we tend to take more seriously for some reason, who have gone the way of James Joyce, and their names would be something like John Barth and Thomas Pynchon, and uh, older than both of these men, Vladimir Nabokov, you see. And they are, of course, the literary avant-garde, or what used to be the avant-garde, and they have gone the way of meta-language itself. Uh, would you put Beckett in this company now? Now, this is an interesting question, because I think that Beckett and Joyce are two poles of the same phenomenon that we're talking about. That Joyce has pushed language and expanded it maximally, and that he is, in that sense, a maximalist. Joyce go, uh, Beckett goes exactly the opposite direction. He is a minimalist, and he tries to reduce and contract language as much as possible, pushing it to the zero point. And they both are, in a sense, questioning the middle ground of mimetic language, of ordinary language, one by blowing it up as much as possible, and one by reducing it almost to zero. Uh, now, I'd like to return to this central question of modern and postmodern in a moment. But first of all, a word from... Dr. Vivian Mercier, he sees specific Joycean influences on the new novelists. Oh, yes, very specific indeed. I've I just uh, quite recently um, published a book on the French new novel, and uh, I, the people that I chose, perhaps this is my own prejudice, um, are 
almost all influenced by Joyce. Raymond Cano, especially, uh, from a very early period. He read Ulysses when it came out in French in 1929. Then he went ahead and he wrote a book uh, which, like Finnegan's Wake, ends where it began. And the curious thing is, of course, that Finnegan's Wake didn't come out for another six years after this, this book of Cano's. Uh, then another French novelist very much influenced by Joyce is Michel Butor. Um, his first novel is it's called uh, Passage de Milan, which is the name of an imaginary street in Paris. And it's a sort of imitation of, of Ulysses. It, it runs exactly 12 hours. Each chapter uh, covers an hour. And um, later, uh, Butor um, developed uh, his own I uh, Joycean ideas, but uh, this is really sort of modeled on, on Ulysses. Also, he's written a couple of articles, uh, including one on Finnegan's Wake, and there is a French tr translation of small parts of Finnegan's Wake with uh, Butor's article as an introduction. Then there are other writers. Uh, Francois Moriac's son, Claude, uh, has also uh, written a couple of very Joycean novels, including The uh, Marquise Went Out at Five O'Clock, um, which deals with a single hour uh, in Paris. Uh, it's... Um, uh, very, very joyous in stream of consciousness and all the, all the rest of it. And Butor, too, uh, writes a novel about a single hour uh, called Degrees. Uh, it's about a single hour in the life of a French lycée. And then everything that leads up to and away from that hour so that the book could have gone on forever. <coughs> Do you suggest that most of the influence is... Um in technique and uh, structure and so on? Yes, uh, it's the technique that fascinates them. The, uh, the new novelists, uh, if you can call them that, uh, it, it, what's new about them is, is their concern with technique. They, they got uh, fed up with uh, political commitment and uh, went back to the novel as a pure art form. And uh, they learned tremendously from Joyce as a result. Even Alain Robb-Grier, who uh, doesn't really admit to a Joycean influence, it seems to me that he's, his very first book, The Erasers, uh, is, um, it, it, it's based on the Oedipus legend, just the way Ulysses is based upon the Odyssey. Now to return to the question of modern and postmodern. One of the most distinguished and controversial speakers of the symposium was Professor Leslie Fiedler of the State University of New York in Buffalo. I, I talked to him along with John Mood of Ball State University and Julia Holloway of Quincy College. They'd all taken part in a discussion led by Leslie Fiedler entitled Joyce and the End of Europe. Well, I, I, I think we've come to the end of a kind of literature which uses language, tries to use language simultaneously to do two things, to call attention to itself and to write about a subject which is outside of itself. And this means, it seems to me, that we now have a double development. On the one hand, we have 
some modern writers who are in a way the heirs, the last heirs, or even the grave diggers of modernism, who have decided that they will make their subject matter language calling attention to itself. This is a direction I am not sympathetic with. I consider it sterile, academic, Alexandrian, a dead end. It's really a continuation of modernism, but modernism in its death throes. On the other hand, there, there are writers who begin to realize that there's a way of using language in which language becomes invisible and precisely doesn't call attention to itself, but becomes, as it were, a transparent medium through which song and story operate to revive or create or recreate in the mind of a reader, listener, whatever, certain primordial images. This pop literature always, always does. And that's why the attention of many people are turning to popular literature, which has never been lost in the problem of language. Popular literature is, in a way, literature not only without a style, but without a language in the sense of something which is interesting as a subject matter in itself. When we think of the stories, for instance, of Conan Doyle, we don't think of them in terms of the words in which they're expressed, a few phrases that are characteristic of the protagonist. But basically, it doesn't matter whether the writer writes well or ill. What matters is whether he uh, stirs up in the minds of readers enduring images which correspond, which touch them really on a level below consciousness. In my talk yesterday, I was trying to talk about the two contrary impulses in Joyce. I mean, there, he was a man who was ramped right down the center by the impulse to move in those two directions. Uh, if, if I can talk for a minute about Finnegan's Wake rather than Ulysses. In Ulysses, you see the extreme extension of the two things. That on the one hand, Ulysses, uh, Finnegan's Wake seems something which is just about language or just an exercise in language or a, a virtuoso performance in language. On the other hand, what Joyce finally succeeds in doing in that book, and Ihab Hassan and I had a conversation about this yesterday at one point, is finally to create in it the sense of noise. When I was in Mulligan's pub the other night, the impression I had when I walked in and all those voices were hitting against each other, static canceling each other out, was I was reading Finnegan's Wake. Because uh, this is the, the, there are two ways in which speech can die. One, it can die into silence or it can die into noise. That is, signals which interrupt each other so much. Uh, that, that, and, and, and in that sense, Joyce remains true to a kind of popular tradition, which is the tradition of, 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 of voices on top of each other and music on top of that and the clink of glasses on top of that and the sound of hands on wood on top of that until finally you get that kind of noise which, which, which releases also a kind of primordial response. I mean, one of the names of the great god who is always being born and reborn in popular literature is Bromios the noisemaker, who is Dionysus, who is Bacchus, who is Iacchus, and so forth. Mm. But you know, having said all that, where is your good old-fashioned storyline, which is surely... Uh, that, cho that, that, that choice knew he had to do, yet didn't know how to do it anymore when he was in Finnegan's Wake. There still is a storyline in Ulysses. When I saw Saul Fields... Uh, film the other day. It was a reinforcement for me of the notion that there's a very sentimental story running through Ulysses. I mean, I found tears in my eyes as at reading a piece of pop fiction when the figure of Stephen's mother appears uh, in the Circe episode. This is a story about a boy who's trying to come to terms with the memories of his dead mother whom he feels he has offended and then trying to lay the ghost which appears. That's still there. 
It's very hard for me to find it anymore in Finnegan's Wake. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In the true tradition of popular literature, uh, two things are never lost. One is song and the other is story. In Ulysses, there's still song and story, but it's being fractured. In Finnegan's Wake, it gets harder and harder to follow. Well, now, uh, if this is what uh, Ulysses is about, and if it has these great popular elements, is it recognized as such, though, by its readers? Uh, John Mood. Uh, well, I think, I don't know. This is what uh, Lester was arguing, or that it may, may become a popular novel, if not in sales, at least, well, I don't know, and, and I don't... I, I wonder if Anthony Burgess's attempts to do the same for Fingers Wake are, are abortive, bound to be abortive. Uh, I, I see both of these elements there. I, I just tell my students that, that Ulysses is just has two rousing good stories in it. One about a guy who's trying to come to terms with his wife's infidelity, and the other about the same guy trying to find uh, 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 an heir to, to pass on his wisdom. Uh, and this, this, and I put in the third story of a boy coming to try and well, come to terms with the memory of his mother. Steve, he was right, offended. Yeah, mother. Yeah, these, right, these three stories, and and it's done with all these elements that I just find it extremely uh, accessible in a way that I'm not convinced that Finnegan's Wake ever will be. I always wanted to pick up something here that Leslie said about the uh, uh, a lot of the novels uh, and, and people that uh, Ihab Hassan mentioned. Uh, I thought they were they were not postmodern novelists. Uh, by any stretch of the imagination, uh, at least what I understand postmodern to be, uh, one or two of the novels themselves I find very interesting. Uh, Jealousy by Rogue Grillet, I just think is a tour de force. I don't know how. And I think it's pretty accessible, too. But I was wondering something about uh, novels like Port Noise, Complaint, or uh, Why Are We in Vietnam, both of which love language and calls attention to itself, and yet both uh, of which are, are surely pop novels in some real sense. I was wondering what Leslie thought about that. Yeah, well, uh, Portnoy's Complaint seems to me a perfect example of a pop novel because it, it, in a way, though, that there, there is a certain joy in language, the language finally disappears and what you hear is the, is the self-pitying complaint, anguish, cry, anguish, anguish of, a, of a boy who's an expert and feeling sorry for himself. Yeah, okay. Besides which, it's... It's a compendium of bad jokes. Yes. I, all, all the bad Jewish jokes in the world that were ever told about Jewish psychiatrists, Jewish mothers, Jewish sons are all told there, and it becomes a meta-joke. In a certain way, you could argue it's more uh, truly descended from Finnegan's Wake in that sense than mm -hmm. anything else. Mm -hmm. Moldy yeah. joke book. Yeah. To what extent do you regard Irish as, uh, Ulysses as a meta-Irish joke? Uh, it, it's even better than that. It's a meta joke about the Irishman and the Jew, which is one of the greatest of all the jokes in the world. Do you think, uh, Julia, that in, in America today, that they understand this a aspect, that they really regard it as an, as, as an Irish story? Um, you, you see it from both sides. Yes. I found myself having a lot of difficulty, because when I talk about Ulysses... I talk about Dublin. I talk about it as being the way Dante writes about Florence, where every street is charted. And my American students say, but it should not be that way. It should be universal. It should apply to us. And I found myself during this whole symposium um, becoming more and more enraged about us Mer Americans here in the way we discuss Ulysses. I, I find a lot of young Irish students in the audience with whom we don't speak, who, when they speak about Ulysses together amongst themselves, speak about it extremely intelligently and sensitively. And I wish somehow we could break down these boundaries. 
and perhaps ourselves have a bit more humility. But I think we are the foreigners coming to the book, and I think we forget it. I think we want to possess it ourselves, and we are reacting to it. Uh, we are trying to own it the way the Irish scholars are trying to own Shakespeare when they discuss Hamlet in the National Library. Let's get back again to this problem of access. Uh, I suppose most of us would not, would not find Ulysses a book difficult of access, really, for anybody who's, who's willing to put in even a little bit of, of serious reading on it at all now. But uh, uh, Finnegan's Wake seems, does seem to belong, in some sense, to the elitist, uh, to elitist readership, if you like, even in the same way in which Proust does. Yes, I, for different reasons. Yeah, I think I, I think that's undoubtedly true. Finnegan's Wake will remain an inaccessible book. Not all of it. I mean, there are some parts. When Joyce goes back into the female voice again, deep inside the female consciousness, yes. mm-hmm. in the same act of impersonation yeah. with which he closes Ulysses in the Olivia section, yes, yes. then it, I think that's a, that's available to almost anyone. And I would add. Though it probably should be heard in the ear and not read right, with the eyes. That's the other. I would add also the final. Ten pages. I just, I think those are at least the equivalent of, of the Anne Olivia section. I've also thought a long time, and there's no, nothing unique about this, that if, if Joyce had recorded the whole novel, uh, it would have been a different novel. Um, there's a comment I'd like to go back to, yeah. your question to me. Uh, I find the underground, the works that are being read by young American students, which are not the academic works, are Saka Makias, they're Herman Hesse, they are. Uh, Juan Kasi, uh, you know, the diary of the Indian, the dialogues oh, with the uh, uh, um, Don Juan. Confessions of Don Juan. Right, yeah. which are far more in the order of Finnegan's Wake. Uh, yeah. And I found, I was teaching a seminar in Blake, and the students were very much turned on by the whole concept Blake has of the psyche of Albion, which in Finnegan's Wake becomes uh, Finnegan. And they understood it far better than our generation could have. They no longer want naturalism, realism. They want the interior monologue of the mind, uh, the but, battle but, but, within. But Cass, you made this book about uh, mm-hmm. Don Juan, books, since there are three of them now and a fourth to come, mm-hmm. uh, are books which are told in straight, naturalistic, yes. old-fashioned, yes. traditional mm-hmm. fashion. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 Carlos is getting a little better uh, as he goes along in, in writing. The third book I think is better written than the first. Yeah, but, and, and and quite obviously, as he learns to write better, it becomes clear that he's making the whole thing up. That this is not an account of fact because the way in which Don Juan speaks changes from volume to volume as as he knows better how to project that kind of character. But the very notion of pretending to a certain kind of reality takes us back to the beginnings of fiction in the 18th century, when every novel said it was founded on fact so that people would believe it. Yes. I'm not sure that I agree that it's not founded on the fact, but there's another aspect of what Julia was saying that's, that's very interesting, and that is just the simpler fact that, and this comes back to the pop novel business, uh, it was said, I think Leslie said it in his speech, that uh, he hopes uh, kids still, people still discover Ulysses outside the classroom. But let me say a word or two about Hesse and Castaneda because it's interesting whether that uh, Indian shaman does in fact exist, and he's given a name which is, you know, like John Smith, mm-hmm. right, so it's, it's confused the issue totally. Whether he exists or not, what he, t- what, what he comes back from the dead or from his visions to tell us is the pop theology which is available on the streets of San Francisco or New York to begin with. Yes. I mean, 
it, it, it's sort of the standard received heterodoxy of, of the moment. But strangely, I think Joyce was prophetic of that movement in Finnegan's Wake. Though Joyce never made a commitment to that kind of mysticism yes. or pop mysticism. Yes, what, well, no one would deny the fact that Joyce was a prophet. Strangely enough, I more and more become convinced that Joyce, is, Joyce, what Joyce is saying is that he is restating, in fact, the Judeo-Christian world vision. His, no. And he's, he, is, he is more and more, I find him more and more, uh, uh, close to the, to the orthodox vision of uh, our tradition in this. In, and in fin- I find Finnegan's Way an enormous affirmation of, of, of incarnationalism. Oh, yeah. oh I, 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 on the contrary. You see, I, I, it, we're, we're obviously going to discover we have a mirror where we each discover ourselves. I think the end of it goes back through Christianity to the true Judaic roots. The vision of death, which comes at the end of Finnegan's Wake, is of death as final. There is, uh, that is to say, except in a metaphorical sense. The earth goes back, the body goes back to the earth from which it came, the sea from which it came, Joyce would say, and the spirit to the Lord who gave it. There is no notion of personal survival in Joyce at all. The grain of wheat dying. But it's a, yeah, but uh, you know the the Aunt Olivia who's reborn is somebody else who's uh, also. Aunt but Olivia. that image of the circle in Greek thought is a symbol of eternity. And indeed, it would take an eternity to plumb the riches of Finnegan's Wake. A guest of honor at this year's symposium was Maria Jolas, friend and collaborator of Joyce with her husband in Paris when they founded the magazine Transition. Now over 80 years young, she casts a quizzical but warm eye on what may be described as the Joyce industry. I'm I'm very much impressed to see to what extent most of these young people uh, who are anywhere from 20 to 40, uh, and even sometimes younger, have really studied his works. They know them by heart. They can really talk about them and they can give the page numbers and chapter and verse. In other words, it really corresponds to, to the cult for Shakespeare, the cult for the Bible, <laughs> on which we were brought up in America. Right. I, do think, I do think that it probably will bear fruit. In other words, it has kept, um, kept Joyce alive in the minds of many, many people. And I know of no writer of his time of whom that can be said. Uh, when you think that a man in, like André Gide, for instance, who, who reigned supreme for years, uh, has now entered the purgatory of uh, post-death, Claudel, more or less the same thing. Uh, somebody mentioned in a rather interesting way yesterday, Bergson, and so forth and so on. But and even Proust. And even Proust. Well, not so much Proust, because... Uh, uh, there are the faiths. But may I say that, uh, put it down to American curiosity, because a, a, an America, a recent American biography of Proust has revived tremendous interest in him, you see. But it was um, the stimulus was given by one of my compatriots. We're an ignorant people, but we're a curious people. And I think our curiosity, in this case, has... uh, Joyce would have laughed at it and been touched by it at the same thing. He would have been ambivalent in his attitude to it. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, of course, isn't every artist uh, ambivalent, if you like? Doesn't every artist have mixed feelings about this? He likes to be people to be interested in his work. He likes to be flattered. He likes even people to discover things in it that he knows aren't in it and never were in it. And eventually, perhaps, he believes that they were in it. Well, I think what he prefers to everything is total silence. An artist? Yes. Oh, I beg your pardon. I'm, I'm not saying what I intended to say. Is that, that it, what he uh, dreads more than anything is total silence. You see, excuse me, I'm a very old lady and I sometimes get mixed up when I'm talking. But uh, the, certainly there has not been silence around Joyce. You know, he has... I'm absolutely, as the French say, ébloui by what I've heard in the last three days here. However um, extravagant some of it may seem. And you yourself look on Joyce as... A friend. A dear friend. And uh, an absolutely rare one. Did his friends always realize that as well as being a very special kind of person, that he had this extraordinary genius. That is something that I have already said here, and I'm delighted to be able to repeat it. We were all aware that this was uh, perhaps a man in a century. As we worked with him, we were, we were aware of it. Uh, from the work itself and from the man himself, it, it was evident that here was an absolutely different person. As Nora said one day, she said, I don't know whether he's a genius or not, but he's unique. And she should have known. She knew. <laughs> now, on the question of the essential Irishness of Joyce and particularly of Ulysses, Darcy O'Brien of the Pomona College had this to say. Well, the, the thing that I've been rather dismayed about this time, this symposium, is simply to discover that the, we haven't made much progress toward resolving that old question which is always brought up. Is an Irish Catholic Dubliner the only one who can truly understand Ulysses? The question is always raised and then dismissed uh, as, of course, the answer being no. The fact of the matter is that it, the question shouldn't be posed in that way. The book is part of a culture. It's part of world literature, too, but it grows out of a very specific culture, a very specific milieu. Not enough attempt has been made, other than photographing buildings and things of that kind, and book looking up songs and books and so forth, not enough attempt has been made, it seems to me, by the typical uh, non-Irish Joyce scholar simply to immerse himself in this culture on the assumption that the book grows out of it and on the assumption that the best way to understand the sort of nuances of the conversation, after all, Ulysses is mostly conversation, the best way to understand those nuances is to listen to conversation, to talk to people. Um, I've heard people say, well, we can't get any information out of the Irish. I find this astonishing. It seems to me that the Irish are very ready to give information. Uh, the issue has also been raised, um, who reads Ulysses? Well, the fact of the matter is, I know one scholar here who confessed to me, although he would not admit it in public, that when he was at Harvard University, he was taught to read Ulysses by 
the janitor, who happened to be an Irishman, in the elegant house that he was living in. Uh, the most knowledgeable person about Ulysses that I know, and I say this in all honesty, is an Irishman who uh, was in the British Navy for about 20 years, got very homesick, started reading Ulysses, and now lives in considerable physical difficulties in a basement in Los Angeles. And I've talked to him about Ulysses for hours, and his special pastime is finding the mistakes that Joyce made in Ulysses in terms of topography, and he's come up with quite a number of them. Uh, whether they're deliberate or not, we don't know. But my general point is that, that uh, it's, I suppose it's typical of intellectuals, uh, their passion is to abstract things. The first thing you do with Ulysses is to abstract it from the culture that it comes from. Then you can talk about it in terms of structure, theme, world literature, and so forth. But it's really a manifestation of the city. It, it is, the book is Dublin. And therefore, the more you know about Dublin, the more you know about Ulysses. You might get something out of going back and reading Aristotle, but that's not really the point. But there is surely the question as to whether uh, the Dublin on that one day at the beginning of this mm. century is any, anything except in the merest physical, mm. uh, in, ter in terms of physical displacement, the same city as the Dublin of today. Well, all I can say in answer to that question is that I feel that I did not really begin to understand the nuances of the book until I came here and lived here. And the reason I like to come back here is not just for Joyce's sake, but because I discovered that as wonderful as the book is, it is wonderful because it is a manifestation of this city. And I think the city is, of course, physically uh, enormously changed, but culturally not very much changed, partly for very specific reasons. Ireland, this part of Ireland, has never undergone extensive industrialization. It is still a city very much unlike other European and American uh, cities of its size. Uh, conversation uh, talk is still a very important element here. And uh, you simply learn more by, by listening to that than you do by um, speculating. But you see, the, the point is that it's really a, a question of, of intellectuals and academia and so forth and so on, because they don't like to do that. They, um, they don't like to go into pubs, basically. They're afraid of them. Oh, no, come, come. Perhaps I'm getting a bit extreme, but I think, I think that's generally true. They like to view it you know, through field glasses from afar. I think that, that basically um, they'd rather listen to a recording of the Clancy brothers than to hear Luke Kelly and Grogan's. I mean, I think that would terrify them. Darcy O'Brien is perhaps a little unfair to his fellow scholars. An Irish scholar who has always emphasised the utter Irishness of Joyce's material is Dr John Garvin, and not only, of course, in the obvious cases of Dubliners and the portrait. Ulysses was uh, written and published while Joyce was in exile on the continent, and it subscribed Trieste, Zurich, Paris, 1914-1921. But in fact, Joyce was living on his memories and his notebooks and on Tom's directory, uh, setting down the adventures of, uh, of Leopold Bloom and Stephen D., who was imported from a portrait of the artist into Ulysses, on this day in Dublin, the 16th of June, 1904. The title suggesting the correspondences with the scenes and events in it which may be found in the Homeric epic, The Odyssey. Ulysses contains some of the best examples of demotic English as spoken in Ireland ever recorded in, in literature. 
Take the beginning of the chapter known as Cyclops, from its Homeric correspondence with the blinding of Odysseus, uh, the blinding by Odysseus of the Cyclops Polyphemus, indicated throughout by the use of the word I. Whether the first person singular personal pronoun or the visual organ, as may be heard as I recite the piece. I was just passing the time of day with old Troy of the DMP at the corner of Arbor Hill there, and be damned but a bloody sweep came along and he near drove his gear into my eye. I turned around to let him have the weight of my tongue, when who should I see dodging along Stony Batter only Joe Hines? No, Joe, says, says I, how are you blowing? Did you see that bloody chimney sweep near shove my eye out with his brush? Such look, says Joe, who's the old bollocks you were talking to? Old Troy, says I, was in the force. I'm in two minds not to give that fellow in charge for obstructing the thoroughfare with his brooms and ladders. What are you doing round these parts, says Joe? Devil a much, says I. There's a bloody big foxy thief beyond by the garrison church at the corner of Chicken Lane. Old Troy was just giving me a wrinkle about him. Lifted any God's quantity of tea and sugar to pay three bob a week. Said he had a farm in the county down off a hop of my thumb by the name of Moses Herzog over there near Hatesbury Street. Circumcised, says Joe. Aye, says I, a bit off the top. An old plumber named Gerrity. I'm hanging on to his taw now for the past fortnight, and I can't get a penny out of him. That the lay you're on now, says Joe. Aye, says I, how are the mighty fallen collector of bad and doubtful debts. But that's the most notorious bloody robber you'd meet in a day's walk, and the face on him all pockmarks would hold a shower of rain. Tell him, says he, I dare him, says he, and I double dare him to send you around here again, or if he does, says he, I'll have him summoned up before the court, so, so I will for trading without a licence. Well, that gives a, an example of um, the Dublin dialect of the time, and presumably as it still persists, although, of course, it was personal to uh, the speaker, the first person singular, and I don't believe, in fact, that that speaker was a Dublin man, so that perhaps my accent, although it's not a Dublin one, may be taken as a fair reflection of the way in which the speech might be delivered. Then we go on to Finnegan's Wake. This purports to be a history of the world, portraying mankind in its universality, but history, it, it, it may be, including myth and legend, and mankind, including prehistoric and legendary man, but they are all, again, based firmly on Irish characters. First you have Finn McCool, a legendary hero of old Ireland, who is the ancestor of Finnegan of the Irish-American ballad Finnegan's Wake, who in turn gives way to Earwicker. And uh, Earwicker becomes the universalised symbol of all mankind in his initials HCE, symbolising Here Comes Everybody. Then, in the succession of uh, warring figures that uh, are symbolised throughout the book, Brian Baru and Citric Silkenbeard and the Battle of Clontarf are featured, and uh, uh, more or less as a kind of descendant of Brian Baru or of Mahan, his brother, Marshal McMahon is introduced as uh, the, the hero uh, in the Crimean War, the gentleman who became President of the French Republic. Uh, ALP uh, stands for the River Liffey, universalised as the log of Annie to the base all. Her daughter, Isult, is based on the village of Chapel Lizard, and of course she comes into the tale of uh, the, the romance of Tristan and Isult. The Phoenix Park is the centre of a great portion of Finnegan's Wake, and uh, here uh, Joyce borrows from Lefanu's uh, old house by the churchyard. Shem and Sean, the sons of... Uh, 
Anna Livia and H.C. are symbolising the Irish exile, namely James Joyce, living abroad, and Sean, the towering Irishman in the political life at home. Joyce uh, also leans largely on the Book of Kells and all its uh, internet uh, ornamental script uh, with a view to symbolising uh, the, the way in which he himself undertook the dismantling of the English language. He also introduced St. Malachy's, prophe Malachy's prophecies and uh, looks forward to the time when Antichrist will take over before the last day when the great uh, judge will come to judge the living and the dead and he refers to that as till Malachy wars bring the devil era in. Uh, Thomas Moore is also quoted largely right through the book particularly the first lines of his Irish melodies and the airs to which they were set. For example, Silent O'Moyle is uh, turned into an oceanic term for all seas and all oceans. And Night Clothes, C-L-O-T-H-E-S, has E-D attitude, and it forms the two first words of night closed around the conqueror's way and lightnings hid the distant hill where they who lost that dreadful day stood few and faint but fearless still. In regard to the history of the world, the, the plain of Sutton, which emerged in some prehistoric time to make... Uh, to make Hoth uh, almost uh, to make Hoth instead of an island a peninsula, peninsula, uh, is featured as a place on which mankind may look from the city of Dublin out across the old green plain of Minalta, the plain of the flocks, and there see the remains of uh, the human species of thousands of years ago. Countlessness of live stories have never fallen by this plage. Flick as flow flakes litters from aloft like a vast wizard all of whirl worlds. Now all are tombed to the mound is jazz to his gaze, erd from erd, pride, oh pride, thy prize. And looking across that plain, after all that far fetched and peregrine or dignant or clear, Lift we our ears, eyes of the darkness, from the tome of Liber Lividus, and tow how peaceably ironical all dimmering dunes and glomering glades self-stretches afore us our freedland's plain. Lean neat stone pine, the pastor lies with his crook, young pricket by pricket's sister nibbleth unreturned viridities, amid her rocking grasses the herb trinity shams lowliness. Sky up is of ever grey. Thus too for donkey's years, since the bouts of he bear and hairy man, the corn flowers have been staying at Ballymun, the dusk rose has choosed out Goat's Town's hedges, two lips have pressed to gather them by sweet rush, town land of twine lights. The white thorn and the red thorn have fairigated the mere valleys of Knockmaroon, and though for rings round them during Achilliad or Perihili guys, the Farmorians have brittled the tuat of the Danes, and the oxman has been pestered by the firebugs, and the joints have thrown up cherry building to the Kevenses, and little on the green is child's father to the city. Year, year, and laughed years, these paxiline buttonholes have quadrilled across the centuries, and whip now waft to us, fresh and made of all smiles, as on the eve of kill all who. Vivian Mercier, in his book on the Irish comic tradition, now out in paperback, 
places Joyce firmly in that tradition. The whole book couldn't have existed without Joyce, in a sense. Whatever topic I was dealing with, whether it was wit and wordplay or satire or what I call the macabre and grotesque in Irish humour, uh, it was uh, essential to refer to Joyce because, uh, you know, he, he w- the, f- the extraordinary thing is that he was so steeped in everything Irish without knowing the Irish language. Uh, it, he got it from his father, from everything around him. He, he brought so much of Ireland with him. And then, of course, he did his homework afterwards. afterwards. There's no doubt uh, he, he read um, a, a, a great deal of, uh, of Irish literature in translation, old Irish literature and um, modern Irish literature in translation, particularly when he was writing Finnegan's Wake. Uh, he began to realize how much he he needed of that of that kind of thing, and of course the the biggest thing of all in in a way is uh, the parody. Uh, the chapter in my book that is totally devoted to Joyce uh, is called James Joyce and the Irish Tradition of Parody, and I take it all the way back to the vision of Macondlinna, uh, the original of uh, Joyce's Cranley from a portrait assured me, this, his name was J.F. J. Byrne, he assured me that Joyce had read Cuno Meyer's translation of The Vision of Macondlinna. Now, there, I, I have no other evidence of that, uh, but I, it, it, it seems hard to believe that he didn't read it. And, and the, the, the parodies of scripture and so on, and of, of the liturgy that you find in, in uh, Ashlinga Macondlinna, you also find in Finnegan's Wake or even in, in Ulysses. Um, of course, then, the whole idea of, of building Finnegan's Wake round puns, uh, it, it's, it's uh, an essential part of the Irish tradition and uh, particularly, of course, of the Anglo-Irish tradition. Uh, Swift and um, uh, the dramatist Sheridan's grandfather, the Reverend Thomas Sheridan, uh, had a mania for for puns. They were always writing letters to each other in uh, pseudo Latin, which turns out to be English when you when you read it uh, um, when you read it aloud, and uh, in in all sorts of ways, uh, Joyce was in in that particular tradition. There is a a book uh, written by Sheridan called Ars Punica, the art of of punning and it has a whole series of rules and I was able to show in my book that, that whether Joyce read that or not. Oh and in fact he, he did read it. I, I discovered later that, that, that there is a reference in Finnegan's Wake to the art of punning. It, it, it's called uh, the art of panning I think being, uh, making a pun but it, it, it's definitely there in, in the uh, paperback edition of my book, I was able to slip in a footnote showing that, that, that uh, Joyce knew this. And on a, on, a, on a deeper level, do you think that Joyce, uh, ha, uh, that Joyce had ingested into himself that he had uh, the, what might be called the, uh, an attitude towards life and towards the world that, uh, that comes out of this tradition? 
Well, he, uh, I, I would uh, certainly uh, agree with that. I mean, it's, it's uh, and the conclusion of my book is that the fundamental uh, literary tradition, older than, than the tragic, is, is the comic. And in, uh, because Irish literature has always looked back to its beginnings, has always been archaic, uh, you you get this uh, you get this spirit all, all through this this sense uh, they, perhaps it's because we are capable of such tremendous awe and uh, worship that it, that we have to have this other side that that we 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 are both and and you know this 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 is something that I take seriously that that the Irish are more religious than other people. It's not just an accident, well, it is an accident of history, perhaps, but whatever it is, that, that they are more concerned. And, and because of that, they have to have this relief from it. They are, uh, on, the, on the one hand, the most reverent, and on the other hand, the most irreverent people in the world. 